All right, good morning. So fun to see everyone this morning. This is going to sink. That's fine. All right. Um, so my name is Sarah. I'm one of the pastors here. Um, it's just awesome to be together this morning. Thank you so much for being with us. Um, a couple years ago, I was driving on um, 95 near Boston, rush hour traffic, cars everywhere. My family's in the car. And I was in the middle lane, just minding my own business, and the guy in the left lane didn't check his blind spot and merged straight into our car. Blind spots, not checking your blind spots, causes accidents. And actually, it turns out, blind spots cause a huge percentage of car accidents in the United States. So there are nearly 7 million car accidents every year in the United States, and 1 million of those are caused by people not checking their blind spots, not looking over their shoulders and changing lanes. And that's why when you take driver's ed, one of the first things that you learn is how to check your blind spot, how to look over your shoulder before you change lanes. Because if you're going to be trusted to operate a two-ton piece of machinery around other human beings, you have to get used to checking your blind spots. And I want to apply that same logic this morning to our spiritual journeys. If we are going to be people who follow Jesus in 21st century American culture, we have to get used to checking our blind spots. We have so many of them. And so this morning, I'm going to hopefully reveal one of our blind spots. But before we do that, I just want to orient us and remind us where we are in this series. So we're in a series right now, right in the middle, called Your Best Life, an Alternative Vision. And in this series, we're looking at some specific values of the kingdom of God, some specific ways of life that Jesus invites us to live. Um, and these often feel countercultural or even just bizarre because they are an alternative vision of the best life. We believe at Sanctuary that following Jesus is the best possible way to live. And it's often very different from the way that we have been trained to live. And so if you are a follower of Jesus here this morning, we hope that this series is an opportunity and an invitation to kind of recalibrate and to say, actually, am I living my best life? Am I living the way that Jesus invites me to, that we believe is the best possible way to live. If you're not a follower of Jesus, if you're new to exploring spirituality, if somebody dragged you here this morning, first of all, I'm really glad that you're here. And second of all, we might today and throughout this series be talking about some things that feel and sound really foreign to your ears. Like they may not even make sense. And honestly, that's to be expected, because we are presenting an alternative vision of the best life, something different. And so I just want to encourage you this morning, be open, allow yourself to be challenged, and to even just allow yourself to, to do a little inventory. Am I living my best life, and what is the vision of the best life that I have? So today, this is our second week looking at the value of community second week. And I'm going to share some thoughts, and then I'm going to turn us to Scripture for some better thoughts. Uh, but we're going, to, we're going to talk about community today. So this is a value I don't think anyone in the room would say they're against, right? It's, people are not against community. Everybody is for community. Even if you are the most raging introvert, 
you want friends, you want to be known, you want to be loved. Last week, Pastor Brandon talked about just how we're hardwired for community. We are designed to be in relationship with other human beings. And so um, this is something that most of us are for. And community is really good for us. So in addition to all the ways that we know it's good for our mental health and our just feelings of happiness, community is actually really good for our bodies too. It's really good for our health. Um, So uh, a 2010 study found that the effects of social ties on lifespan, so how long you live, are twice as strong as that of exercising. And it's the equivalent of quitting smoking. Being in community has a profound positive impact on our health. And this holds true regardless of age, gender, health status, and eventual cause of death. So that's, that's a profound statement right there. Another study found, um, and this is from the book Bowling Alone, which you've never read, it's such a great book. Um, but this study found that joining and participating in just one group cuts your odds of dying next year in half. That's crazy. Joining and participating in one group cuts your odds of dying next year in half. Being in community is so good for us. But our experience of community in 21st century American culture is often lacking. So according to a recent Barna study, the average American has only one close confidant. 46% of U.S. adults report sometimes or always feeling lonely. 46% of U.S. adults sometimes or always feel lonely. I can relate to that. I'm sure you can relate to that. (coughs) And 45% of American adults find it very hard to make new friends. Very hard to make new friends. So uh, when we were reading, um, I was reading the book that our home groups are going through, and I meant to bring it up here. It's a purple book. It's a great book, Kingdom Values. We're going through that in our home groups. As I was reading the chapter on community, I found, thank you so much, Um, I found that my eyes were like pricking with tears as I read this chapter on community because there is a, a longing and a hunger inside me for the rich, like depth of community that's described in this book and that I, I long for. And so I know that a lot of us, while we, you know, Community is good for us. We want that. A lot of us don't experience it, and there is this deep and profound longing for community that we're not experiencing. And so um, what I want to suggest today is that when it comes to actually experiencing the kind of community that we long for in 21st century American culture, we have a major blind spot. So we want this thing. We are desperate for it, but there's a giant obstacle preventing us from ever having the thing that we long for, and we can't see it. So just like the guy who wanted so desperately to be in my lane, and he wants to merge there, but there's a giant obstacle, it's a seafoam green Prius, in his way, he cannot get into my lane because I am blocking his way, but he can't see me. 
because he didn't check his blind spot. And that's what I think is happening with us in our experience of community. We are so desperate for it. We want it, but we are blind. We cannot see the thing that is preventing us from experiencing it. And so I will talk about what I think that blind spot is, but before I, or sorry, what I think that obstacle is, what's preventing us. But before I do that, I want to talk about why we're blind, why we can't even see the thing that's preventing us from experiencing community. What has blinded us? So really simply, we are blinded by our culture. Our ideas about community and commitment, along with our ideas about almost everything else, these ideas that shape our preferences and desires and feel like they're so much a part of us, they feel so unique, they feel so, you know, this is a part of me, these ideas have been profoundly shaped by the culture in which we live. They've been profoundly shaped by 21st century American culture. We are a product of our culture. Culture is the water that we swim in, it's the air we breathe, and unless we step back and intentionally look at it, Usually when we're comparing it to another culture, so usually in contrast to an experience of another culture, we literally cannot see our own culture. So we assume that our ideas and our values are normal or just kind of a given or universal when many of these things are actually subjective and very context dependent. Culture shapes us in ways <clears throat> that we can't see. Now what we know from any good conversation on cross-cultural communication or any, any of you who've ever had any kind of diversity training or cultural sensitivity training, one of the best strategies for kind of becoming aware and doing well in cross-cultural relationships is that you learn to become aware of your own cultural bias and then you learn to adjust as needed. For those of us who are following Jesus in 21st century American culture, how often do we apply those same techniques when our experience of following Jesus comes into tension with the values of the world around us? How often do we critique the world around us rather than our Christian values and way of life? So we follow Jesus, those of us in the room who follow Jesus, we follow him in the middle of a culture that doesn't. So we should expect to experience tension. And yet what I see is that a lot of us are quicker to deconstruct our Christian ideology than to ever look at the culture in which we live and actually deconstruct our 21st century American culture. So those of us who are following Jesus, we are Christians, but we are also 21st century Americans, those of us in the room who are Americans, right? We, we have a culture. We can't see it. And so when our values come into conflict, we need to be able and willing to look at the culture that we have within us that we've been shaped by. So I want to help us see that today. So really quickly, um, how has 21st century American culture shaped our views on community? How has this, how do we see this played out? So just a quick history lesson, and I'm drawing a lot of this from the book Kingdom Values that we are reading in home groups. And if you haven't purchased one, you can find me afterwards and I will give you a book. So um, there's a slide that can come up. So um, before the Industrial Revolution 250 years ago, 
Our world was primarily made up of agrarian, non-urban societies. So societies built on agriculture and the cultivation of land for survival. With the Industrial Revolution 250 years ago, society's relationship with work changed. So um, work now primarily happened outside the home, mostly in factories, for example. Today, we're living in a post-industrial society. Most of us no longer work on farms or in factories. Most of us work in office buildings on computers. And so these shifts in society over hundreds of years have shaped and formed and enculturated and indoctrinated us in a way to begin to prioritize the individual over the group and personal preference over commitment. These are just natural things that have happened with these changes in society. We have begun to prioritize the individual over the group and personal preference over commitment. And so our experience of community has changed drastically along with these shifts. So pre-industrial societies were organized around what sociologists called thick communities. Long-term, stable communities like clans, tribes, extended families. And in these communities, work and family were interconnected. Families, extended families, worked together independent, interdependently to survive off the land that they inhabited together. In industrial societies, individuals began to earn income outside the home. And so extended families no longer needed to work together to survive. Individuals worked independently to earn income to purchase goods for the nuclear family to survive. So you see how we're shifting from a group to an individual and from long-term stable committed relationships to personal preference. And so these thick communities of the past were then replaced by what sociologists call thinner communities. And these are even sort of from a bygone era. So leagues and guilds, my parents' generation, bowling leagues, Kiwanis clubs, things like that, replaced the loss of those thicker communities. But today, we don't even have those. And that's what the book Bowling Alone is about. We have been trained to prioritize the individual over the group and personal preference over commitment. And so our experience of community has shrunk from these thick communities to thinner communities to what one philosopher calls peg communities. So if you want to put the next slide up. This is a picture that describes the difference between a web of interconnected relationships in a thicker community to a peg community, which he says... Um, are merely a group of disconnected spectators gathered around a mutually loved experience for a feeling or sense of something shared. So this is our experience. Book clubs, sporting events, exercise classes, most of our modern communities are based on common interests and shared experiences. So I want to say that twice. Our modern communities are based on common interests and shared experiences. Now, I am going to guess so many of you in the room are like not impressed by that statement because it sounds normal. This is our blind spot right here, that community is based on common interests and shared experiences. Even I would imagine some of you in the room think about sanctuary that way that I'm here with a common interest in Jesus and a shared experience of Sunday morning worship. What is wrong with that? That is normal. Actually, it's not. 
This is the first time in the history of humankind that community has ever been thought about this way is in the last 50 years. This is not normal. This is cultural. This is our blind spot, that this is all we know of community, common interests and shared experiences. This has been shaped by the culture. And there's something dangerous. So this is our blind spot. There's something really dangerous lurking in that blind spot, just like my Prius was lurking in that guy's blind spot, that's going to prevent us from ever experiencing the kind of community we're longing for. And if we try to have and engage in community without dealing with that obstacle, just like that guy didn't deal with my Prius, we are going to fail. We are going to fail if we don't understand this obstacle. And so this obstacle, I want to suggest, the thing that is preventing us from experiencing community is our culture's obsession with and worship of self. We are such a self-centered society. And again, that has been shaped over time. It's not, I mean, I say this gently, it's not your fault. I don't know. There's something in there that is. But our, we've been trained to worship ourselves. And so for followers of Jesus, when our obsession with and love of something takes a place in our life that rightly belongs to God, so none of us would say we worship ourselves, but when we love ourselves more than we love God, the biblical word for that is a really intense word. It's idolatry. We've placed something in the place of God. We love something more than God. And usually these are things that we're influenced by the world around us. And so we adopt the love of the world around us, and our world loves self. And so... For those of us who follow Jesus, if we love ourselves to the extent that the culture loves itself, it is idolatry. So the Old Testament is full of stories of God's people who are supposed to worship God, going astray and worshiping other gods, usually the other gods of the culture around them. Now, in you know, ancient Hebrew society, they're literally tempted to worship other gods, Baal and all kinds of other gods. In our society, we're not usually tempted to literally worship other gods, but we are tempted to love other things that the culture loves more than we love God. And so um, I think that this is the obstacle. So I want to take us right here to Scripture, because all of this so far has been my thoughts and lovely thoughts and the person who wrote the book's thoughts. But we really need to go to Scripture and to listen to the voice of God. So this reminds me, this whole thing that we're talking about this morning reminds me of a story from the Old Testament of a time when God revealed to Israel their blind spots and helped them to see their idolatry. And this is the story of Josiah. Um, so this story is told twice in the Bible, in 2 Kings and 2 Chronicles, and I'm going to kind of go back and forth between the two um, tellings of it because there's some little details in each that are significant. Um, but I just want to tell you the story. So um, Josiah becomes king of Israel when he is eight years old. He is a young boy. He is younger than my oldest son, and he becomes king of Israel. And this was after about 60 years of a period in which his father and his grandfather, kings before him, 
had led Israel astray. They had wandered away from God. They had actually allowed pagan altars to be set up all over the land of Israel, and they had forgotten God. And then Josiah becomes king at age eight. And then um, in, uh, so six, uh, eight years into his reign, at age 16, Second Chronicles 34.3 says, in the eighth year of his reign, while he was still young, Josiah began to seek the God of his father, David. So David was a king after God's own heart. He was someone who sought God. He was one of Josiah's ancestors. Josiah, at age 16, with nobody leading him in a culture that his family had established that forgot God, Josiah began, began to seek God all on his own. He has this revival of his spiritual life that goes on to change the world around him. So he spends the next four years from age 16 to age 20 going throughout Israel and tearing down altars to other gods. And then eventually he sends some people to go purify the temple which had fallen out of its proper use in the last 60 years. And he sends them in to purify it and they come back to him and they say, hey, Josiah, we found a book in the temple. It's the book of the law, the Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament that had been completely forgotten and just left in the temple. And so they find it and they begin to read it to Josiah. And he is overcome with grief. He tears his robes as he hears the scriptures read for the first time. And he realizes that his people have not been living according to God's vision of the best life. He's overcome by this alternative vision of the best life. His people have been living one way for 60 years. He's never heard the scriptures before. They're read to him and he falls on his face, rips his robes and says that, that is the best way to live. He's overcome. And so Josiah calls all the elders of Judah and Jerusalem to the temple and he reads the word of God to them. He reads the entire Torah to them, all five books. And they commit themselves to God from that moment on. It's beautiful. Then, this is the, the key thing. They go into the temple and they realize there are idols set up inside the temple. After they hear the word of God, their eyes are open and they see these idols inside the temple and they take them out. And so it's an encounter with the word of God, an alternative vision of the best life that opens their eyes to their blindness and shows them their idolatry. And honestly, that's my hope for us today. I don't, I'm not hoping that we'll tear our clothes and, you know, fall on the floor, but I am hoping that as we encounter God's vision of the best life and we compare our experience of that to it, that we would be overcome with grief, but also with hope that the best life is possible and Jesus can show us what it is. So how do we do this? What do we do? We can admit that we're blind. We can admit we have this obstacle. What do we do next? Well, thankfully, it's not actually all up to us. So God is a God of mercy. He wants us to experience his life so badly that he will help us to do this. He meets us in our blindness and he leads us out of it. This is what he did for Josiah and the people of Israel. So I want to turn us quickly to Isaiah 42. 
And um, this is a prophecy that was spoken to Josiah's ancestors about their idolatry. It's actually a passage of judgment, but in it, there's some really beautiful things. So um, initially in the beginning of the chapter, God reminds Israel of their calling. So he tells them in verse 6 that they are supposed to be a light for the Gentiles, people who don't know God, to open eyes that are blind. This is part of Israel's calling, to open eyes that are blind. This is fulfilled in Jesus, but this is what Israel was supposed to do. And that's like us. We, we live in a world of people who do not know Jesus, who do not know the best life. And Jesus actually invites us to share in his ministry of opening eyes that are blind. But how do we do that if we're blind? So as we continue in um, Isaiah 42, God turns to Israel and basically says this is the exact same thing. Your calling is to open eyes that are blind, but you're blind. Verse 19, he says, Who is blind like the one in covenant with me? Blind like the servant of the Lord. You have seen many things, but pay no attention. You, your ears are open, but you do not listen. So basically, you have this calling, but you're blind. But then, this verse that's on the screen, I love this verse. God tells Israel, I will lead the blind by ways they have not known. Along unfamiliar paths, I will guide them. I will turn the darkness into light before them and make the rough places smooth. These are the things I will do. I will not forsake them. Because God loves Israel so much, and because God loves the world so much, he's not going to leave them in their blindness. He's going to meet them and lead them <clears throat> by unfamiliar paths. And that's what we need. If you've ever been led blindfolded, like on a trust walk, you know how uncomfortable that feels. And yet this is what God wants to do for us. We have been trained in the area of community one particular way. God has a different way, a better way, but as we follow him in his paths, it may feel like being led blindfolded because we are so unfamiliar with his way. Our culture is so unfamiliar with his way, but that's what we need. We need God to come in our blindness and lead us on his paths that are unfamiliar to us. We don't even know what it looks like to engage in community where we do not prioritize the individual over the group and personal preference over commitment. We don't even know what that could be like. We don't, but God does. He says, I know the way. Actually, I am the way. I'm the truth and I'm the life. Trust me. So really quickly to close, what are these paths that are unfamiliar, that feel like being blindfolded and led along a path we don't know? What are these paths? I have three. Uh, Pastor Brandon talked a little bit about the first one last week, but I want to get a little more granular and gritty with it. The first path is the path of commitment. And this is choosing to trade your freedom for what you really want. So often I think we're hesitant to engage in community, to make promises to each other, to commit to anything. We're hesitant to commit to people, to relationships, to spiritual practices, to community, because we think we want the freedom to not show up. We think we want the freedom to have an out. And yet we also all want to be loved, to be known, to be in community. We want that. So which do you want more? I think this is an area where it's worth it to trade our freedom in the short run for something that we really want in the long run. 
which is to be known and to be loved, to live longer. <laughs> if you want to even just get that kind of selfish about it. We really want that. G.K. Chesterton, philosopher and theologian, talking about commitments and vows, he said that while it might appear to limit our freedom in the short term, the person who makes a vow, so the person who commits to something, makes an appointment with themselves at some distant time or place. So in the area of community, I think it's worth it to trade our freedom in the short run, to make a commitment with ourselves in the future for something that we really want. So just a couple of really specific ideas. So the first one, I wanna tread lightly here and gently. And I, I didn't tell Pastor Andrew that I was gonna challenge us to do this. So if it bugs you, it's not his fault. Um, but I just wanna say this delicately. Some of you in the room who are followers of Jesus, come on Sunday when you feel like it. You come when it works for your schedule. You come when you remember, you come occasionally, and I want to ask why. And I wanna challenge you, what would it look like from now till Christmas, just for this fall, to challenge yourself to show up and be in the pews every Sunday? What could that change? It would limit your freedom in the short run, but I think it might give you something you really want in the long run. What would that look like? I can't, I can't promise that that's gonna be life-changing, but I think it could be. And I also know that when you're not here, we miss you. We need you. I actually fully believe we cannot be the church we're called to be without you. We cannot, sanctuary church is not sanctuary church without you and without you. And so while you have many other wonderful things to do on a Sunday, we don't. We're family. This is where we are. This is where we gather. This is who we are. And we miss you. And we want you here. So commit. Trade your freedom for something you really want. Secondly, um, join a home group. So Sunday morning, you get a little bit of that web of community. At a home group, you get the depth and richness of what it means to be known, seen, loved, unconditionally. Go to a home group. Don't just go occasionally. Go every week. Commit to a home group. Could it be worth it to trade your freedom for what you really want? Thirdly, commit to people, to commit to being friends with people who are different from you. So here is something I want to return to those statistics. So 46% of Americans are lonely, 45% of Americans have a hard time making friends. More than 50% of Americans say that the only two things required for a good friendship are honesty and trust. And yet, according to a recent Barna study, the majority of Americans always chooses friends who are mostly similar to them in every single category studied. Income, politics, religion, education level, life stage, race and ethnicity, and social status. We are lonely, we want friends, we want community. We say that we will put the effort in if, um, if opportunities present themselves. And yet we always choose friends who are mostly similar to us. So first of all, logically, that just doesn't make any sense. That's dumb if you want friends and there are people around you who are different from you. And all it takes to be a good friend is honesty and trust. Be friends with someone who is different. 
But secondly, I can't think of something that violates the values of the kingdom of God more than that. But this is how we've been trained by our culture. 21st century American culture says that community is based on common experiences and shared interests. And so that's all we know. We don't know what it's like to build community based on anything different. But the kingdom of God, our community isn't based on common interests and shared experiences. It's based on Jesus. It's based on his love. It's based on a better way to live. And so I want to challenge us. Let's get out there and build community that's not based on common interests and shared experiences. Befriend someone who has nothing in common with you. See what happens. So commitment. Secondly, and these two are really quick. We need grit. We need grit. We need to be able to persist through difficult seasons. Being in community is hard. Sticking it out in relationships is hard. Staying committed to people is hard. Staying committed to spiritual practices or to anything at personal cost is hard because we've been trained to prioritize the individual over the group and our preferences over commitment. Fighting against these ingrained instincts is hard. When people are hard to love, when people hurt us, when we no longer feel like we're getting anything out of this group, we bail because that's what the world has taught us. If community is only about common interests and shared experiences and I'm taught to prioritize the individual over the group, why would I not bail? We need grit. So just to give a little example, I remember how difficult it was when Greg and I had little, little kids, like babies who napped during service time, to go to church, to be part of any kind of community. It's so hard. And I'm not saying this to toot my own horn. I'm honestly just saying this because I've been there. Greg and I made an effort to be in church every Sunday, even though it messed up our nap schedules. We were part of a home group, even though it was very inconvenient for us. And I asked Greg, why the heck did we do that? What made us crazy enough to do that? And Greg said something that I thought was really profound. He said, I think we were trying to cast a vote for the kind of family we wanted to be. It's not easy in the moment, but walking the paths that Jesus leads us in, retrain us and reform us and help us to believe, for example, that sometimes our preferences are irrelevant. Sometimes, actually, we need to take our desires and our preferences and submit them to a higher calling for the sake of something greater and better than what we want in this moment. So we need grit. And then lastly, we need grace. Forgive as you have been forgiven. I think one of the biggest barriers to sticking it out in community is that the world around us and we ourselves do not know how to reconcile. We do not know how to rebuild friendships that have been broken. In a world of cancel culture and just kind of cutting toxic people out of our life all the time, we do not know how to reconcile with one another. And so to build community and to walk in these paths, we need to forgive each other as often as we've been forgiven. We are broken. We are going to hurt each other. I am just as broken as you, and you are just as broken as the person next to you, and we are going to hurt each other and screw this up. We are. We need grace. We need to forgive. And this is a path that definitely feels like being led blindfolded. 
And yet this is the path that Jesus walked for us. Jesus gave his life, laying down his self-interest, his preferences, his freedom, his power, all of that. He gave his life for love, for us, for the group, keeping God's promise and commitment to us at great cost to himself. This is the path of Jesus. And so what better place to close than to remind us of that great love and that unfamiliar path by coming to the communion table. The communion table reminds us of that love that doesn't prioritize the individual over the group, that doesn't care about personal preference. When we take communion, we remember that on the night before Jesus died, he shared a meal with his friends, his beloved community. At that meal, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples and said, this is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup of wine and said, this is the blood of the new covenant, which is shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. The Apostle Paul tells us that whenever we come to the communion table, that we proclaim the Lord's death until he returns. And sometimes that seems strange. We want to proclaim his resurrection. He's alive and risen. And yet we proclaim his death every time we come to the table because this is the greatest act of love the world has ever known. And so this morning, I want us to remember... This love, this love is a love that is so foreign to the love that we think we know. But this love leads us to the best possible way to live. May we be a community that loves like this, that does not prioritize the individual over the group and personal preference over commitment. We're going to take a moment to sing and prepare our hearts for communion, and then Pastor Andrew is going to come lead us. So, Lord Jesus, I believe you have given us a picture of the best possible way to live. I also know that we are blind. Lord, meet us in our blindness. Lead us in your paths. Pick us up when we stumble. Set us on a path that leads to life. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.